on fire with volcanic and earthquake action all around it except the American West Coast. Uh, there was an article this morning I read about the Cascade uh, earthquake zone up in the Pacific Northwest that goes from about halfway up Vancouver Island down into Northern California, and that it is a far more dangerous uh, fault line than even the San Andreas, which everyone knows about, and could kill potentially tens and hundreds of thousands of people depending on how and when it hits. We we see that pressure building around the earth. Why hasn't it hit the U.S. coast? <clears throat> With all the movement and the tectonic plates around the ring of fire, it's quietest in North America right now. Does that mean that all these pressures are being built up with a little bit of release elsewhere <clears throat> and that the pressure continues to build here and will be released all at once? I think that's probably a pretty good possibility. So we have natural disasters. We have continuing and increasing moral depravity and a recognition of that, at least now in the news, of how much, how widespread it is. We're teetering on the edge of war, world war. Uh, we have <clears throat> cultural change coming. I'm going to go to Matthew 24 just for a moment. What did Christ say would be the sign of his coming, the end of the world? We are quite familiar with verse 6. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. That is reaching a cascading level today. Uh, there are wars all over the world. There are rumors of more wars. Uh, we hear about North Korea and Iran, Russia, and China almost daily. And he tells us, see that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So, a lot of talk about war. Uh, don't worry yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And then that will be followed by famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. So, a lot of the trouble starts with famine and pestilence. We've already, I saw this morning that there are already 44,000 people that have died of the flu in this country alone this year already, and it's not even the peak of the flu season. Uh, they're talking about various <clears throat> diseases that are increasing and plague could start. Well, what would cause famines and pestilences? Does just totally a lack of water bring this about? If it's all just based on drought and lack of water, then people could say, well, God, you withheld the rain, it's your fault. But what if a lot of the cessation of food being delivered is not for lack of food somewhere, but is for lack of delivery? In other words, a collapse occurs which causes food not to be able to, A, be produced, delivered, and sold. And that a lot of the famine could be man-contrived. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be droughts. <clears throat> Cape Town, South Africa, a city 
with its environs of several million people, is destined to run completely out of water by sometime in April of this year, three months away. I've seen people in Shantytown, uh, a huge area outside the city of Cape Town, where people are living in washer and dryer boxes and anything they can put together, old metal, old plastic, anything for shelter, and they are carrying water on their heads in pots and buckets for miles already. And that was in 1998, 9, and 2000 and through that area. And now their reservoirs are basically empty and they will have no water within three months unless big rains come or something and refill the reservoirs. So there's millions of people right there who will not have anything to drink except it's shipped in from somewhere. And it's difficult to ship enough water for millions of people. So there are places on earth like that. And they're even saying they're, we're very, very close to water shortages in this country in spite of all the water that is here. So famines and pestilences. When you have people without food, they begin getting sick, and then disease spreads. Uh, there's a time of famine because good water is shut off. Uh, disease begins to prevail, so pestilences occur at a time of famine. And then earthquakes in different places, and we're seeing them all around the world now, especially around the Ring of Fire, which goes down our west coast. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then it shows a societal breakdown in verse 9, uh, where we have thought we were safe in a land of liberty. Uh, they're going to turn on anyone who professes to be a Christian, and especially on true Christians. They'll deliver you up to be afflicted, tortured, misused, abused, and shall kill you. And we see that movement in place in America today. Uh, we see a huge party of people who are against white people and against Christians. We see Muslims moving in by the tens of thousands who hate Christianity in the name of Christ, getting set up to cause terror in our own nation, and it isn't being stopped. So, when it says the souls of those who have tried to serve Christ are under the altar crying out, that means that there is going to be panic and destruction of anything called after the name of Christ in this country. And we know Satan is going to come after the church itself there in Revelation uh, 12 when he is cast down for the last time. And many will be offended and betray one another and hate one another. And be betraying one another means causing them to face death. I've got people accusing me right now of things that were I convicted of them and had I done them could lead to life imprisonment or a death penalty. I've been accused of murder in the first degree for killing my wife, which is ludicrous, but those charges are being brought to the Sheriff's Department in Mojave County every week, right now, right now, to the attestation of a sheriff's deputy this week. They haven't stopped. 
So it's starting in the church. It's going to spread all over the nation. And they are going to kill Christians or anybody who professes to be a Christian. And because of iniquity and sin, the love of many will wax cold. Now, he goes on to explain all the things that are leading up to the tribulation here, but I want to skip down to verse 32. Now, learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So likewise you, when you shall see all these things, that he's just talked about and that we just read, plus more that's there. Know that it is near, even at the doors. It isn't a long way off coming, it's at the door. That's pretty close. If you're in the house and you've got enemies at the door, it's close. Truly I say to you, this generation, the one existing, when these prophecies begin to be fulfilled shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So those of us living today will not all die until this is finished. And he said there in Haggai, when he tells us to build a temple, and again in Ezra, that there would be old men around who would see the latter temple in its glory. So, that indicates to me that this generation will almost pass away before these things are completed. And that he is going to use people to build a temple, and there will be old people around who saw the former temple, Worldwide Church of God, at its zenith, at its best, and they'll be able to compare the two and see that the latter is much greater than the former. We've been over this many times, but I want to discuss it again in the present context. So, the temple has not yet been built, has it? That's got yet to happen. And there will still be old people around who saw worldwide at its greatest. So, we still may have a few years left until that prophecy is fulfilled. How many? We'll talk about that in a little bit as possibilities. But no, it's at the door. It's very close when you see all these things happening. Now, we've been reading Matthew 24 for decades. But we see it right on the edge now in a way that we never have before. Our country is beginning to come apart. We have such strife in Washington and division that it could erupt into violence at any time among the leaders and stuff is being disclosed right now, as we sit here, that some are saying could cause indictments against some of the previous leaders of this nation. I mean, high-ranking officials like presidents and secretaries of defense and so on could be indicted shortly. And if you don't think that doesn't set Democrats against Republicans and set sow the seed for civil war, uh, you got another thing coming. Because people are ready for violence, and they believe strongly in whatever side they're on. So these things are at the door. We could see civil war in this country within weeks or months, very easily. Maybe it won't happen that fast, but it very easily could. If there's an assassination attempt or an assassination, or some people are put in jail for what they've done in the last 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, 15 years, 
It could happen that fast. Now, let's go back to Ezekiel. We finished up in chapter 39 last week. And we've been discussing uh, here the beginnings of a resurrection of Israel, which goes over several periods of time before all are resurrected. But those bones in chapter 37 represent all of Israel, which will be uh, resurrected in their order, not all at once, because they aren't all in a valley and couldn't be. Uh, And then it shows that there will be uh, villages that are unwalled, not protected by military or or, or, uh, or uh, walls or anything else, and that the Asian hordes will come against them in the latter days. They won't destroy us. They will, by God, be destroyed in the latter days. And there will be a great shaking in the land of Israel. So we go on down through... 38 and 39, and we come down to the end of, of 39, verse 28, he says, Then shall they know that I am the eternal their God, speaking of Israel here, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. That's what the church has already experienced and what the nation is about to experience. But I have gathered them to their own land and have left none of them any more there. So his faithful remnant is going to be gathered to its place to do what? To build the temple. Haggai makes it very clear that people will say it isn't time to build the temple, but that it is, and that it needs to be done. And it goes on to explain that it will be done by Joshua and Zerubbabel, who were identified in Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11, is the two witnesses, along with the remnant who comes to them to build the temple. We've been over that many times, and it's easily proved. So the time to build the temple, then, is the time in which those leaders appear and the remnant is gathered. Now, he says here in verse 29 in Ezekiel 29 of 39, Neither will I hide my face any more from them. Now, we've read many scriptures where here in the end time, uh, with the Laodicean church as we have known it, where God says, I have turned my face from them, I have spewed them out, I have decimated them, I have destroyed the church, and so on and so forth. Many, many scriptures we can point to that say that. But now we're looking at a different time. Let's don't go over that ground anymore. We've been there many times. Here he says he's not going to hide his face anymore. And he will pour his spirit on the house of Israel, says eternal God. Well, it's going to be the spiritual house of Israel first. Then later, physical Israel, after they have gone into captivity again. But notice the context of where he makes this statement just prior to chapter 40. Now, chapters 40 through 48 of Ezekiel go through and show a vision that Ezekiel had, verse 2 of chapter 40, "...in the visions of God brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, by which was as the frame of a city on the south." And then he shows this measuring reed to measure 
what he sees. And then in the end of verse 4, he says, Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Where do we see a measuring rod? Zechariah 2, isn't it? Where he says to this young man, Go out and measure. Uh, and he says, Run, because the time has come. The time of haste. A time to hurry and get this done. So, what we have here is then a an outline, or a blueprint, if you will, of how to build the temple. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this verse by verse. Uh, it's just a lot of data, and so far from this post to that gate, and so on and so forth. And it's very, very difficult, if not impossible at this point, to understand what this building is to look like just by reading what you have here. I've looked it up uh, where various people have tried to take Ezekiel 40 through 48 and assemble all the data that is given here and through their interpretation of what is said here, they build a model of the temple that's described here. And guess what? They look, every one of them, different than the other. There, is, there isn't enough here to show us exactly how it is to be. It's all in the Mind the imagination of the beholder. They use the different distances, but they come up with a totally different looking building, every one of them. So obviously there's not enough here to know just how to go about it. That tells me one of two or three things must happen. That in the treasures that God is going to reveal uh, in Isaiah 44 and 45, Maybe there are blueprints, maybe there are maps and historical records which would show where and how this is to be done in such detail it could be understood. Or God will have to give somebody a vision with the temple built in that vision so they can see what it looks like. In other words... We need more information than we have right here. If all of us right here were to go out today and know pretty much where the temple needs to go, and each of you were put in charge of reading this and making a figure and then building that, we'd have all kinds of different drawings. They wouldn't look alike at all. That's already been shown by people who've tried it. So, in other words, in some form or some fashion, God is going to have to show somebody just how this is to be done. And it will have to be Zerubbabel and Joshua or somebody who's part of the remnant, because they're the ones that are charged with building it. So, somebody within that group of people, not the Jews somewhere, but within God's spiritual Judaism, the church, this will have to be revealed. It'll have to be shown. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to spend much time in Ezekiel 40 through 48 today, uh, just because most of it is technical data. And uh, it gives some instruction to the priests, the sons of Zadok, who represent the end-time ministry. And uh, it gives some instruction, like in 44, uh, verse 22, to the uh, or well, even above that, 
instruction to the ministry. Verse 8, let's start in 18. It talks about their clothes and how they're not to do anything if they're good to go in uh, and wear anything that causes sweat. So this shows they're still human. Uh, they shall not sanctify people with their garments, neither shall they shave their heads, verse 20, nor suffer their locks to grow long. They're not to have shaved heads or long hair. <clears throat> they're only to pull their heads. <clears throat> Maybe that means not their beards. Neither shall any priest drink wine when they enter into the inner court. They can drink wine, but not at that time. They're not to take wives of a widow and a herd that is put away. They'll take maidens of the seed of the house of Israel or a widow that was married to a priest before. They'll teach my people the difference between the holy and profane. Read Haggai 2. Makes that very, very clear. And cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. That's what they're told to do in Haggai 2. And in controversy, they shall stand in judgment. So if there's disagreement, the ministry, the priesthood, will be the ones who make the decisions. They shall judge it according to my judgments, and keep my laws and my statutes and all my assemblies, and hallow my Sabbaths. And then they're not to touch dead bodies or so on, except unless they're a close relative. And then they have to go through cleansing, uh, and so on. And then it shows dividing up the land, the promised land, among the different tribes. So, the promised land is here. Uh, the temple is to be built in it. And the land is to be divide, divided up among those who represent the twelve tribes of Israel uh, during this period of time. And then he says that he's going to have the waters in chapter 47 flow out from the east side of the temple. Uh, and it describes the same scenario as what we read about in Revelation 21, or 22 it is, the beginning of 22, where the river comes out. Uh, that's in the New Jerusalem where there's no temple. The Father and the Son are the temple of it at the end of 21. But it goes out to heal the nations. So, how many times have we discussed those scriptures which say that here in the end time, in the context, is the latter days, in each case, where God will give us uh, conditions such as were in Eden. And here, he shows conditions with the latter temple <clears throat> that are similar to what will be seen in the temple of God when the Father and the Son come at the beginning of the millennium. And these will go out to heal the waters. Healing the waters means no more salt. <clears throat> explains it right here in the context. It'll be fresh water instead of salt. And he talks about the great sea to the north. That would be the salt lake. And the waters of strife in verse 19 to the south, which is the Colorado River. Uh, Colorado ra river, river Rapids are famous uh, and quite tempestuous and full of strife. So he's speaking of this area. And uh, he talks about Israel that went astray in verse 11 of 48. Uh, and then he describes the city and how the land is given to all the different tribes and gates for them. And in verse 35, he says, The name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Now, does he not say in Zechariah 2 that he will come and dwell with us? 
and not leave us, but he'll be there. So, the name of the city from that time is the Lord will be there. He will come and dwell with us in Zion before he comes in glory at the seventh trump. Because that is clearly talking about the time of the building of the temple, Zechariah's setting starting in the middle of the book of Haggai when he started writing. And it discusses in chapters 3 and 4 the two witnesses and the remnant that is described uh, more clearly in Haggai 1 and 2. So this is speaking of the time when the latter temple is built. It says right here in this context somewhere, I overlooked it, but that his glory will come in. And he will dwell in this temple that is being built here in Ezekiel 40 through 48. So, with just that brief skimming over of this, let's go back to chapter 39 and verse 29 again, where he says, He will bring us to our land, and he won't hide his face anymore, and he will pour his Spirit upon us. Now, let's examine the time frame. Let's examine quite a few things of scriptures that I have put together here that fit Ezekiel 39, verse 29. Because it is right here, one verse away, right on the cusp of the building of the temple, right? He starts describing it so that it can be built. He doesn't give us enough detail here. Or, if he did, you know what? Someone would be out there doing it. And it wouldn't be their job, and it wouldn't be the right time. So, he puts it in language that is hard to understand. That will obviously have to be made clear at some point. Now, let's go to Isaiah 44 and 45. I want today to discuss a lot about the timing of these things and where we are. That's why I started with showing we are on the cusp of all kinds of problems in this country and in the world today. Now, in Isaiah 39 uh, is the death of Hezekiah, which is, I believe, fully a type of Herbert Armstrong, uh, whose sons have become eunuchs in the land today and can't preach and can't accomplish anything as far as any work is concerned. And he says another work will start in Isaiah 40, and it goes on through, uh, the, actually really, through the rest of the book of Isaiah that there'll be a voice crying in the wilderness and say, all men is grass, that's the message, and will be burned up, which is the message of the prophecies. And it describes how that those people during that period of time, uh, even here in 44 verse uh, 8, that those people, you are even my witnesses, is there a God beside me? Yes, there is no God, I know not any. So then it mentions again, uh, that these people around us are their own witnesses. But his people, his church, will be his witnesses that he is God. Will the physical Israel witness that God is God during this time? No. They'll be going into captivity. They'll be learning that he is the eternal. But they won't know it yet. So they can't be the witnesses that he is God. It has to be people that he's already converted and changed and prepared. That's why he sent Herbert Armstrong to call many, out of which few would be chosen to do the latter end-time work. 
after he was dead and gone. So when he speaks of his witnesses here, he's speaking of the two, obviously, and all those who come to them to build the temple. They are his witnesses. Now let's go down to verse 21. He's been talking about the people around us roasting, I mean, uh, serving their idols. But he says, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. Who are his servants today? Only those who are members of the church. Nobody else can be called a servant of God today. Because they don't serve God. They serve Baal. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You shall not be forgotten of me. Now notice what he says. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions, and as a cloud your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now didn't we read something just similar to that in Ezekiel thirty-nine twenty-nine? I've forgiven you, I'll turn my face to you, since you are not filled with sin now, and I will pour my Spirit out on you. Here he says he'll remove those transgressions as a cloud, like the sun suddenly comes through and the clouds depart. And then what's next? Then he says, at the end of this chapter, that there is someone who will declare that Jerusalem and the temple have to be built. And that that person will do God's will. And then he says, this end-time Cyrus, who does not know God, he's not a witness of God, will be shown all these treasures of God. Now we will see that they will be treasures of gold, treasures of silver. It says that in Haggai, the gold is mine, the silver is mine. And we read last week that the Asians are going to come over to the valley with the unwalled cities to abscond the silver and gold and cattle. Zechariah 2 tells us there's much cattle among the villages of Jerusalem. So it will be an abundant area that God has restored, will be full of cattle, and there will be silver and gold that the Asians want. And he says when they come against his unwalled villages, the church, he will destroy them. So the silver and gold has to be the treasures of God brought forth. And he says that he's doing this, in verse 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am eternal and there is none else. So this is a time when God is going to be showing the whole world that he is God. Has this happened? No. How many on this earth know who God is? Just a very few of you. Just a very few. And all through Ezekiel, he says, And they shall know that I am God, over and over and over and over again. And it hasn't happened yet. It's about to. So, the time that he forgives our sins, and the time that is declared that the temple in Jerusalem have to be built, is the time that the treasures come forth. So, at the time, the temple's ready to be built. Because the gold and the silver is needed to build the temple, as is mentioned in Haggai, where the temple is to be built. Or when it says that it is to be built. Now, let's get a little more sense of the timing in Isaiah 52. 
We've been here before too, but I'm going to put some of these together in such a way to show us how close we may be. He tells us to wake up in 51, and then it even asks for God to wake up in verse 17 of 51. And he tells the bride in chapter 52, verse 1, to put on her beautiful garments. Jerusalem, the holy city, that is the church. The bride is to prepare herself, remember, in Revelation, and to put on white garments. That's what he's talking about here. Get yourself ready. And don't let the heathen walk on you anymore, in verse 2. And you're not going to be redeemed with money. You're going to be redeemed by Christ and His forgiveness and turning His face to you. Now, verse 7. There, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him that brings good tidings, singular, that publishes peace. That's what we're going to talk about today is the peace that is about to come. That brings good tidings of good. We're going to see the things that he says are good that are going to happen. We've already started in Ezekiel 39. That publishes salvation that says to Zion, your God reigns. There really is a God, and he is going to come to reign among us and live among us and start his work. Your watchmen, now it's plural, not one anymore, but more than one, and I think two, shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. Now, if you go to Zechariah 6, it shows that they will have peace among them. Joshua and Zerubbabel, they will speak the same, that they will agree. They don't up to that point. They will begin to see eye to eye when. Tells you when. When the Eternal shall turn again Zion, or bring about again Zion, or turn his face to instead of away from Zion. Then he tells us when that occurs, that it is time then to consider the gathering, because the gathering to build a temple will be to those two. Read Haggai 1. So he says, break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Eternal has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. So the true Jerusalem which is waste, which is desolate today, it will begin to rejoice when these two come together, when God does what? Turns his face to them. Isaiah 44 describes it as removing the sin and the clouds disappear and they have sunshine, the face of Christ, which looks like sunshine. Then it talks about the Passover here, down in chapter 53. Now, why? Maybe the timing of this seeing eye to eye will be at the time when God turns around and begins to bless and show signs and wonders. Okay? Because that's when we will see the gathering. We'll see that here in a moment. Now, is it at Passover time? Could very well be, because chapter 53 talks about Christ's sacrifice and the Passover. The whole chapter. Just set right here in the middle of an end-time prophecy. And why? 
nothing about Passover before it, nothing about Passover after it. But right here where it says they will see eye to eye, it immediately then starts discussing Passover. And you go past that, and it says in chapter 54, Seeing, O barren, thou, you that did not bear, didn't have any children, you're going to have children now, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not travail with child. Well, more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the eternal. Well, then he says to enlarge your tent, that you're going to break forth on the right and the left. Verse 5, your maker is your husband. So it's speaking of those who will be part of the 144,000 that are redeemed there in chapter, verse 5. In verse 7, for a small moment have I forsaken you. He spewed us out of his mouth in the 90s. But with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Eternal, your Redeemer. And he says, you'll have peace in verse 10. Haggai says, in this place will I bring peace. Time of the building of the temple. Uh, it talks about peace in verse 13. It says we won't have self-righteousness anymore in, in verse 17, but the righteousness will be of the eternal. So it's a spiritual turnaround he's talking about here, and that he will begin to gather his people together. And the setting seems to be Passover time, when these things will begin. Now, let's go to Zechariah 3. This was written out of, or during the same time as Haggai was written. Let's see what he says here, because this gives you the timing of the two witnesses and the gathering of the people. Now, he's gone down here and showed that this one who would represent him as high priest, if he diligently obeyed, was a brand taken from the fire and then warned to obey. And in verse 8, he says, Hear now, Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, that would be the congregation then, for they are men of sign and wonder, and I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, the branch represents Zerubbabel in several different scriptures we don't have time to prove today. So, what did we read in Isaiah 52? That it would be preached by one, and then the two would come together, the watchmen, and at the time that God begins to shine his face, maybe Passover time, will be the time of joy and happiness because of what? Healings, signs, and wonders. Here he says he'll bring forth his branch and that there will be men of signs and wonders. I know several men right here who if they were healed, it would be a sign and a wonder. And there are others elsewhere, I'm sure. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Now, didn't we just read that they would see eye to eye when God begins to turn things around and turn his face back and bless and forgive sin? The treasures would show up right after that in Isaiah 44 and 45. Healings would occur and Zerubbabel would appear. And... On this stone are seven eyes. Go to Revelation, you find the seven eyes of the seven churches. So, upon one rock, 
the eyes of all seven churches will begin to look. Well, who's behind all this? Christ is the rock. He's the foundation stone, the chief cornerstone. So it is at this time that the miracles and wonders that come forth are going to show Christ's presence. He's the one doing the miracles. So the eyes of the church will turn to Christ. Now, Zerubbabel represents Christ. And doesn't it say there in Isaiah 4, I guess it is, that seven women will turn to one man and say, let us have your name. Whose name do they want? Christ's name. And what man's name will they want? Zerubbabel's who represents Christ. It will be the church of the great God, as it's called in Ezra. The house of the great God will be built. And they will look to the one who laid the foundation and who completes it, which is Zerubbabel in chapter 4 of Zechariah. So they will look to him, the branch, who is brought forth, and they will look to the actual Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So, this is the day when the signs and the wonders begin to occur, that Zerubbabel appears, the two see eye to eye, Isaiah 52, and the signs and wonders start, which will bring joy and thanksgiving and happiness that it's occurred. Then it's 53, which shows Passover of Christ, and then 54, which says they'll start coming from all over. Well, here it says, the seven eyes of the seven churches will be upon what Christ and Zerubbabel are starting to do in preparation to build the temple. And then they will come from all over. And it says, make your tent bigger, make room, because I'm going to replace the children that you lost through rebellion with new children, and more by far than you had. So it's all at this critical juncture of one day, soon after the sin is forgiven, the treasures will appear. On the one day signs and wonders go, the two leaders will begin to see eye to eye. And in that day, says the eternal of hosts, shall everyone, every man his neighbor be under the vine and under the fig tree. So God shows prosperity there. He shows it in Micah chapter 4 about the vine and the fig tree, at the time where he says, flee from the, from the Babylonian and come and dwell in the wilderness and there I'll deliver you. Now let's go to Joel 2. This one we've read many times. Now, here he talks at the beginning of Joel about a terrible time of destruction. So, when did Christ say to watch for these things? When the wars, famine, pestilence, and so on of Matthew 24 start to realize the leaves are on the fig tree, it's at the very door. And we see that in greater... uh, ways than we ever have before. It's here very close. 
So he says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in chapter 2, because this stuff is getting very, very near. Says it again in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. We've made a couple of false moves on that, thinking it was close, but it wasn't quite here. But notice down as we go into verse 23, he's described all this destruction that's coming. And he says then in verse 23, Be glad, you t- then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Eternal, for He will give you the former rain moderately, and He will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. The first month of God's calendar is in April. Uh, the Passover is in April. He says there in Isaiah, at least he, I think he implies in Isaiah 52, 3 and 4, that this seeing eye to eye in the beginning of miracles and then the gathering will occur around Passover time. Doesn't that seem to be the context? Here he says he'll begin to bless and bring you all these blessings of moderate and latter small and great blessings in the first month. And that there will be plenty for everyone in verse 24. Then he says as you go on down that he will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. Speaking here of the church, he's not going to pour it out on all people. Uh, but he goes on to explain that it, he's talking here when he says all flesh, your sons, your daughters, your old men, uh, upon the servants and the handmaids. So it's not just, let's say, on a prophet or on a minister, but here it's on all different kinds of flesh. He obviously doesn't pour out his spirit on those that will be in the millennium later or the great white throne judgment. Not all flesh. Not all types of flesh is being spoken of here, and he explains that within the church. And it's at the time just before verse 30 and 31 uh the day of the Lord, and all these events that occur at that time. So we see that it's the time of the turnaround. It happens very quickly one day, and possibly at Passover time in the first month. Now, uh, verse 32, it shall come to pass, and whosoever shall call on the name of the Eternal shall be delivered Speaking of the time of deliverance again of Micah 4. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Nowhere else but in the Holy Land, the true Jerusalem and the true Zion. As the Eternal has said, and in the remnant whom the Eternal shall call. So he explains right here that what I just said about these people who have his spirit poured upon them is speaking of the remnant all the different types of people that are in that remnant, young and old, married and unmarried, they're all going to be used as signs and wonders, even as we read in Zechariah 3. Just read it. So it's at this time of renewing when these things will occur, and very possibly around Passover time. Now, let's go to Zephaniah. Let's go to Habakkuk. I'll just kind of summarize here because it sets it sets the stage for uh, Zephaniah. Here Habakkuk is talking about 
the trouble that's coming on the world and where he was in the middle of it. Now, Haggai, I mean Habakkuk, was right in the place that you and I are in today. We see all this trouble coming. We know it's about to start. Uh, and he says in chapter 3, verse 2, to please revive or save alive, as it says in the Hebrew, your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make it known, in wrath remember mercy. So he's telling God, when you've been having this wrath and anger, remember mercy. And it's talking about the time when verse 14 of chapter 2 says, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. And it says, woe to him that gets drunk and denies all this. So he's talking about the time when what? The treasures will be revealed, and they will show all around the world, east to west, that God is God. All these things in Ezekiel will be happening to show that God is God. Here he says the same thing. This is a time when everybody is going to begin to realize that God is God. And he asks for reviving the work. He even says back a little further, uh, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tables. Write it out that he may run that reads it. Where else do we see that expression? Zechariah 2, where it says, Tell this young man to go measure Jerusalem, like it says there in Ezekiel 40, and run. And it says the young man in, in Zechariah 2 is to run as well. In other words, the time is getting very, very near, so it becomes important to hurry. He may run that reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. In other words, it will seem like it's here, and it just seems like it just never comes. Haven't we experienced that in the church of God over the last few decades? And we've had people who lived here who gave up because all the things that I began preaching in 96 haven't yet occurred. Some of them have. But the part that we're really looking forward to, that we've been talking about so far today, have not. Now, what does it say here in verse 4? Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. He whose ego, whose pride, his vanity gets in his way is in trouble. But the just shall live by his faith. So he says it's a time period in which we must show faith in God that His Word is true and it will come to pass. In our generation, we've already read that in Matthew 24, it will occur and old men will still be around to compare worldwide in, the, I say, the 50s and 60s with the end time. And any man who's been around that long is getting pretty old. I saw it as a child in those years. And I'm already getting pretty old. Some of the people who were converted in those years are really old and dying. How long, it says, middle of verse 6. Isn't that what we sometimes feel? Isn't that what we're saying, saying right now? How long, O eternal? Now let's go down to verse 20, <clears throat> chapter 2. But the eternal is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, shut up and wait. Live in faith 
and don't worry about it. Then he says to revive his work and not let it die out. And he talks about the end of the age in verse 11, the sun and moon standing still and so on. And then what is his conclusion? Verse 16, When I heard, my belly trembled. When this vision came, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones. What did God say? Eat the little book. It'll be sweet in your mouth, but sour in your stomach. Told Ezekiel that. Told the two witnesses that. Revelation 10. Here he heard what is about to happen, and rottenness entered his bones. And I trembled in myself that I might just die in the day of trouble when he comes up to the people. He will invade them with his troops. He says, this is worse than I want to bear. I just as soon die and wait in my grave rather than what I just saw in this vision. And then he says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine, Go to Haggai 2, and you'll say, it says, has the fig tree produced? Has the olive tree produced? Has the pomegranate produced? Same period of time he's talking about of the two witnesses and the remnant there in Haggai. Habakkuk says the same thing. The fruit doesn't come. The labor of the olive shall fail. The fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. The church has been destroyed. Uh, there's not much left. And then he says, yet I will rejoice in the eternal. I will joy in the God of my salvation. When will that happen? Isaiah 52. It says, when the two come together and see eye to eye, the miracles will start and we will have joy and happiness and singing. Then it has the Passover. Then it resumes with happiness and joy and singing and the remnant coming. So then he concludes, verse 19, The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places. Most of us can barely get up the stairs, much less a mountain. It's going to change. To the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So he says, have faith, wait, uh, don't upbraid God and say, how long, O Lord? Now sure, we get exasperated, we get frustrated, and we look at ourselves sick and weak and dying, and we think, how long? All right, now I'm going to tell you how long. At least approximately. I'm not going to come out and tell you dates, necessarily. But I'm going to show you some things that indicate that this is getting very close. Very close. Now, let's see a little more in Jeremiah 50 about when this will happen, and in the light of what's going on in our nation. Jeremiah 50. I'm going to have to hurry here because I want to go through quite a bit and it's already 3 o'clock. Now, uh, chapter 49, verse 39, says it shall come to pass in the latter days. So the whole context here is the latter days. Uh, it says in verse 2 of chapter 50, Declare you among the nations and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken. In other words, the destruction of Babylon is very near. Verse 3, For out of the north there comes up a nation against her, which shall make her land desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove, they shall depart, both man and beast. So we already know that we will go through famine and pestilence, Matthew 24, Ezekiel 5, and the sword, 
and captivity, Ezekiel 5, and other places. So this is when it happens. Now, let's talk about us. Are God's faithful, and I hope we're part of it. In those days and in that time, just as the northern army is gathering and about to bring destruction, at that time, says the Eternal, the children of Israel shall come. They and the children of Judah together, going and weeping, they shall go and seek the Eternal, their God. Now, where are they going to go to seek God? They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces pointed that way, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Eternal in a perpetual covenant, says He'll dwell there forever, and it will be called, The Lord dwells there, last verse of Ezekiel, right? A perpetual covenant. My people have been lost sheep, and they've been scattered all over the place. But they're going to come just before this destruction, says verse 8. Remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as the he-goats before the flock, because he's coming against Babylon. Uh, I don't have time for all this. We've been through it. Uh, I want to go here to verse 20. I believe it's 20. Oh, yeah. Um... In those days and in that time, says Eternal, when Babylon is about to be attacked, the, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none. Now, we represent spiritual Israel at this point. What did he say? I'll remove your sins in one day in Zechariah 3. I'll remove them in the cloud, Isaiah 44. Uh, I'll bless you at the time of Passover. He'll look for the sins and they'll be gone. God will have forgiven them. Speaking only of the church here. The sins of Judah, and they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. He is going to save some back, and only those whom he reserves, or redeems, or gathered to do the end time work, only those whom he reserves. Ninety percent of the church is going into the tribulation. Ten percent will come and be reserved and protected when they flee from Babylon just before we are destroyed as a nation. Okay? Let's go to 51.46 and get a little more uh, of the timing here. It's talking about our nation being destroyed. Chapter 51, verse 6, Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity. This is the time of the eternal's vengeance. So God is going to rain all hell down on this nation, and he says, come out of it just ahead of that. Verse 10, the Lord has brought forth our righteousness. Isaiah 54 says, it won't be our self-righteousness anymore, but his. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the eternal our God. So God's work is going to be at Zion, just over the ridge from us here. Now, let's go down to uh, verse 46 and tie it in with a period of time. Uh, verse 44, I'll punish Baal in Zion. 45, my people, get you out of the midst of her and deliver you every man his soul from the fierce anger of the eternal. So he's warning us, get out. And lest your heart faint, 
Didn't Habakkuk tell us, don't worry about it. God will take care of us. Sit quietly and wait. Live in faith. Lest your heart faint, here's what's going to happen. And you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land. A rumor shall both come one year, and after that in another year shall come a rumor, and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Now we've heard rumors last year, and different ones of congressmen were saying that other congressmen and leaders of the nation uh, ought to die. They ought to be killed. They ought to be assassinated. We've heard stuff like that over the last year. Now it has gotten much, much worse. Now Washington, D.C. is so divided, and you've got indictments beginning to flow and accusations being made that could put people in jail, and you have people who are primed across this land that when this hits, they will start killing one another. Democrats against Republicans, you know, the, the whole thing that you read in the news daily now. It's upon us. So, that shows you that violence is about to break out in this country in civil war. And it shows here that that's the time to flee, that the gathering will occur, because the nation is about to be destroyed. So do we see the things of Matthew 24 occurring right now? And here's an example of it, of civil war almost upon us. And this is the time, he says, flee to Zion, and there you will be recognized, and there you will preach Christ from Zion. Verse 50, You that have escaped the sword, go away, stand not still, remember the eternal afar off, and let Jerusalem come to your mind. Go to the true Jerusalem, to the true Zion, out in the wilderness, out of the middle of Babylon. Micah 4 says, go to the wilderness even in Babylon. The Middle East Jerusalem isn't the Babylon of the Bible. It says Babylon will be destroyed there in Revelation 18. And Revelation 18 does not describe Israel in the Middle East at all. It describes this nation. And he says, go to Zion and Jerusalem in this nation. The original Jerusalem is here, and that's where people will flee. They're going to say, where is Zion? Everybody in the church knows where the one in the Middle East is. It's that little cemetery just below the old wall of the Arab city of Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, and I'll go to Zion. They're going to question where the real Zion and the real Jerusalem is. That's the one. It's in the wilderness of Babylon, the American Southwest, where it always was, and is waste and desolate today. So it's at the time when our sins will not be found and civil war is coming. So at the time God forgives and washes our sins away in one day. Uh, Isaiah 48, I won't turn there, says to flee from Babylon. And he says he will restore us there in uh, verse 6 of chapter 49, and give us as a light to the Gentiles. Doesn't he say the Christ's light will shine from Zion? So it's talking about the same place in Isaiah 48 and 49. Let's go quickly to Jeremiah, I mean to Revelation 18. 
I'll back up some of what I just said about Babylon. Revelation, actually, end of verse chapter 17 is where it really starts because it talks about uh, the great whore, which God identifies as Israel. And Ephraim, this nation, is the firstborn of Israel and is truly the great Babylon. Now, uh, here at the end of, it talks about this woman. And where am I now? In the 17, I want. The beast shows, and here's this great whore in verse 15. Uh, the waters, the people, which you saw where the whore sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast will hate the whore. God identifies the whore as this nation. And shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom to the beast till the words of God shall be fulfilled. And that woman or the woman which you saw, is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, which city, which nation rules over the kings of the earth today? It's called the lone superpower. The last one left. It is the economic key to the world. To this day. New York and Washington, the United States. This, can you say that Panama rules over the earth? No. You can't say Russia does or China. Now, they're about to, but they don't today. Until America is destroyed, we still enjoy precedence above all. Then it goes on down in chapter 18 and says, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. America's Babylon will fall. The new Babylon will take over the government of Satan and the world. And then it won't be long till it falls. Become the habitation of devils. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Russia hasn't made the world rich. Nobody has but America. We've made the whole hordes of Asia rich. By trade, we've made the whole world rich. Everybody has thought that this was the Catholic Church. Because she's a great whore. Well, she is, but not this great whore. And the Catholic Church hasn't made anybody rich, except the Catholic Church. They have pillaged and raped nations. They haven't made them rich. We have. Then he says, Come you out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not of her plagues. Famine and pestilence are coming, Matthew 24. All the prophecies of the Bible say on Israel are going to come famine, pestilence, and the sword. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And she's going to be rewarded. She says she sits a queen, and she'll not have any sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine. It's going to be a very, very short period of time in which this nation is destroyed. And that's why you have to hurry, as he says in Jeremiah, to get out in front of the northern army before you get destroyed. You've got to get out to safety. And the kings of the earth who've lived deliciously with her will wail when they see it because 
There'll be nobody to buy their treasures anymore. Would people cry about their wealth and materialism and their treasures and their money if the Vatican was destroyed? Big deal. Vatican doesn't fill the Asians and the Europeans with money. We do. We buy their stuff. We make them rich. We made the Japanese rich and they started coming over here as tourists. Then we made the Taiwanese and then the Chinese rich and now they're coming here as tourists. It's our money. We're the ones that have caused the earth to be rich. You know this. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, you heaven and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So we will flee. We will get out to Jerusalem and Zion. And this nation will be destroyed. The handwriting is on the wall. Very close. Isaiah 9, let's see. Isaiah 9.14 also says in one day. Now we know Micah 4, where it says that a time is coming with the vine and the fig tree. That's defined again in Zechariah 3. When all these miracles and wonders come, God's going to bless the Holy Land. Southern Utah, Northern Arizona. That's where it is. And he says that our king is dead, Herbert Armstrong, but not to worry. If we'll flee from Babylon and dwell even in Babylon, in the wilderness, there's where we'll be delivered. That's why we're out here in the wilderness, is God's deliverance will be here. And then he talks about the Assyrian. He tells us to rise and thresh, O Zion, right there. And then he says the Assyrian will come into the land. And he says we will send them packing. Now, he says he's going to send... Gog and Magog packing when they come after us. And he says he will send the Assyrian back the other direction when they come after us. God is going to protect his people and be a wall of fire around it and living with them during the time of the two witnesses and the end-time remnant who will build the temple and build Jerusalem before the tribulation starts. And it will start the day that Jerusalem is and the temple are defiled by the beast power who comes and sets up in that place. Christ will still be with us in the promised land. He won't leave us. He'll just move to Zion and he tells us to move to Zion. And not go back and get your clothes or anything. Just go. Because he'll still be there just a few miles away. And that's where we go is to him and Zion. Now, with that background, I'm going to take a little more time here because I think it's critical that we understand. Uh, let's go to 2 Peter 3, verse 8. I want to lay at least this much background. 2 Peter 3. Here Peter is talking about the end times and everything leading up to the return of Christ and the day of the Lord. But he says in verse 8, but, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the eternal as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So, he's telling us here what we understand, that the week of creation, seven days, represents seven thousand years of man's experience upon this earth and the plan of God. But that will be enacted over... 7,000 years. And the holy days picture to all of that. The plan of redemption from Christ being killed until the millennium ends and the seven days are complete. Then there's a little 
period tacked on like there is a piece of tabernacles for those who never had a chance will come up and have a period of time to be judged. So, Peter is saying that consider a day is as a year. When you begin to think about the end of the age, the day of the Lord and Christ's return, he's tying Christ's return to a day being as a thousand years, okay? Now, all scholars will basically agree that prior to Christ coming to this earth, there were about 4,000 years of mankind's history from Eden on. Some of them come up with 4,025, some 4,004 B.C. The Jews come up with something like 37 or 3,800, whatever it is, B.C. Now, I prepared a chart some time back I gave you. I don't know that I really used it in a sermon. Maybe I did. But if we're looking at a 7,000-year period, then 6,000 years of that have to be before Christ returns, right? Because a seventh is the millennium, a thousand years of peace. So everything leading up to that has to be 6,000 years. Now, Frank Nelty and others will tell you we've been here more than 6,000 years, so this doesn't count. Peter says it does. All through the Bible, it says it does. Therefore, the 6,000 years cannot yet be complete. Okay? because it would defile and destroy so many scriptures. Peter says it is that way. All right? Let's consider when Christ came, and we have explored in Luke 4 and so on, that he proclaimed the Jubilee in 27 A.D., the acceptable year of the Lord. He said, this is it. So he defined for us when the Jubilee is. We can go to Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 40 and put the same story together and it will come out the same. That the 6,000th year, as we shall see, will end in 2027. Because he declared the acceptable day of the Lord, the Jubilee cycle, as 27 A.D. So, past history back to Eden... If that was the beginning of the fifth day, uh, yeah, no, fourth day, five, six came after. The end of the fourth day was uh, 27 A.D. So to know when creation was, if we believe Second Peter 3.8, the day of creation had to be back in 3973 B.C. Because that is 4,000 years prior to the declaring of the Jubilee in 27. So he came at the end of the fourth day, beginning the fifth day. Right? Now, 3973, uh, it might vary one year based on whether there really is a year zero or not, and the scholars argue about that. But then, within one year, 3973 B.C., has to be the day of creation. I don't care what the scholars, scholars say. Now, there will be 2,000 or two years following 27 A.D. So if you go from 27 A.D. and count 2,000 years, that will be a total of 6,000 since the Garden of Eden. That ends in 2027. i got to believe 2 Peter 3.8. i got to go by the years as listed there. Now, you might cut time short. You know, all kinds of things come in. 
says we don't know the day or the hour, and we don't. doesn't say we can't know the year. He says when you see the leaves on the tree, know that it's at the door. Now, we see the leaves pretty well there now, don't we? Very close. So it has to be very close. Now, if a thousand years is as a day, two thousand years has to be uh, 2027. That would be the end of 6,000 years. I mean, even the world understands, the worldly scholars, that it was close to 4,000 years uh, that creation was before Christ. And Peter confirms it. But it's, it's actually 4,000 years, not approximate. They don't know, they, they use chronologies and all kinds of things, and they come up right near 4,000 B.C. But I think we can say, it was 4,000 years prior to 27 A.D. So if you look at that overall picture, you've got to have 2,000 years after to come up with 6,000. And then the millennium is supposed to begin. So 2027 would be again 38 cycles later. 50 years times 38 would be 2027 A.D. Now Herbert Armstrong recognized this in part because he knew 27 A.D. was when Christ started preaching there. And he was called in 26 and 27 A.D., 1900 years later. And he himself said over and over, this is the first time the true gospel of Christ has been proclaimed in 1900 years. So 1926 and 27 had to be the Jubilee. He began his training in 96, and he began really working in 27. That was a prep time. Christ's prep time for his ministry was 26, and he began in 27. Same thing with Herbert Armstrong 1,900 years later. 27 was the actual year of the Jubilee. So God sent him exactly 1,900 years later. 26 and 27 of the 1900s. So now if you need a, t- a total of 6,000, of 2,000 years, you got what? From 1926-27, another 100 years is 2026-27. Return of Christ will probably be in 2026. Millennium will be set up when the Jubilee is announced at Pentecost 2027, a year after Christ marries his bride. The prep time and in the actual time of the beginning of it. So it all fits perfectly, doesn't it? If it's that close. Now, let's consider some other things. What Ezekiel did in laying on his side in Ezekiel 4 for uh, 430 years, 390 days for uh, Israel, 40 days for Judah, says right there in the context, I won't take the time, says right there in the context, each day for a year. Ezekiel is an end-time book, so those 430 days had to represent 430 days in the, or 430 years in the end time. End-time book. 430 years are designated there, each day for a year. How long was Israel in Mitzrayim? 430 years. The whole time wasn't captivity, but they went into captivity, but they were in the land of Mitzrayim 430 years. To the day, 
came out on Passover, 430 years later, having been slaves all that time. Now, God tells us there in Ezekiel 4 that those days were to represent years in Israel's history here at the end that would terminate in the destruction of Israel. They would go back into captivity. So the way it fits together is God gave us 430 years in Mitzrayim in captivity. Then He released us to go and serve Him. Now in the end time, He reversed the process. He gave us 430 years of liberty, which we screwed up royally, and we are at the end of now, and we are about to go into captivity, just as Ezekiel said. A day is as a year, 430 years after you are given liberty, you will go back into captivity. I do believe that Roanoke, Virginia was the first permanent colony in America, began in July of, 17, of 1587. 430 years later is 2017. We're still in 2017 until April. God's calendar. So we, since we came to this land and proclaimed liberty from the King of England, have been here 430 years and we're about to go into captivity. Now, does Ezekiel make sense of what those days represent? They represent 430 years. We don't have 430 years left for it to start now. It's ending now. And we were about to be invaded and destroyed. So, we fit the 6,000 years together, ending in 2027. We fit the time of our captivity going into it at about 2017, 2018, based on 430 years. It all fits together perfectly. Now, we have the Isaiah six, uh, 7 prophecy of 65 years, and before that 65 years were complete, Israel would be, or Ephraim would be destroyed. In 1953, the Bilderbergers began. And they had a plot hatched up, and the purpose of their forming was to destroy this country. And they made alliances with Arabs and with the Jews, to destroy this country. And they've been working at it ever since. We know that the false Jews, the Edomites, will be laughing at Jacob when they help destroy her. Now that prophecy has to fit somewhere because God says it's a sign. So, when you put these other things together and come up with 2017 as the end of 430 years, then the Bilderberger prophecy in Isaiah 7 fit together perfectly for 2018. 2018 is 65 years since that pact was made in 1953 at the first Bilderberger meeting. So before 2018 was over, based on that, this country, Ephraim, will be destroyed. In the 430 years, 65 years is in 2018, got to be destroyed before 2018 is over, as I see it. Pretty close. All fits. Now, 
Let's take a little more time. Your behind will last. Herbert Armstrong began in 1926 and 27. God began to show the Minor Prophet series in 1996 and what it meant. 1996 and 97 were the preparation time to begin this work. When all that was revealed. Even where Zion was and at Passover of 96. All began in January. All right, let's compare then what Herbert Armstrong did with what has happened to you right here. I don't know whether this is valid or not, but it sure is strange. Let's see the parallels. Uh, in 19, uh, 1926 and 27, Herbert Armstrong began to understand truth and the things that would be central to his work. Sabbath, holy days, and so on that he studied. Uh, now, how did this occur? 1924, Herbert Armstrong had a failed business and moved to Oregon to get a fresh start. In 1994, I had a business of three mobile home uh, dealerships and two subdivisions in Nevada and Arizona, which failed in 1994, and I went back to Alaska to get a fresh start. Same year that he did. Same event. Seventy years later. Seventy years later, exactly. 1926-27, Herbert Armstrong called to new knowledge, Sabbath, and baptism. 1996, January, came the new info that led to the Minor Prophet series and gave us a vision of the Promised Land. A new work. 1931, Herbert Armstrong says the end-time work began and... In 70 years later, in 2001, we moved to Utah to begin a new work. Exactly 70 years later. 1933, Radio Church of God Incorporated had a formal beginning of, uh, like Acts 2. It was formally organized. 70 years later, in 2003, in January, we divided up the land and formed a new beginning on this place. Seventy years later. Same event. Now, in 1934, the radio uh, began in January, plain truth in February, 1934. It began to reach out to the world in 1934. And you know what? Seventy years later, nothing. No parallel. Why? Because God told us not to go to the world. Here at the end, go to the church, the altar, examine the ministry, examine them that work, that worship there, the ministry and the church, and take care of the church. You see that in Zechariah 4, don't you? The two feeding the seven churches, the golden candlesticks. So there is nothing 70 years later because Herbert Armstrong began the message to the world in, in 34 and 70 years later the church is told don't do that. 
Now, later on, they're to preach to the world. So there's no parallel 70 years later to that event. Now, let's go on. 1936 and 37. Herbert Armstrong tried to establish a work in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, in the Middle East. And it failed. Seventy years later, December 6th and January of 07, we learned of the true Jerusalem. And that the work needed to be done there instead. So he tried it, and then 70 years later, we find out where the real place is, so that it can be done. Isn't that interesting, 70 years later? 1946 and 47 was the preparation and the beginning of Ambassador College, which was what? It was a gathering together of students and faculty and people to do what? To do a greater work. That's what the college was established for, to train a ministry to do a greater work. Now, what about 70 years later? 2017. Does that begin the events toward the gathering and a greater work? Around Passover of 2017. Hasn't happened yet, so I can't say this happened 70 years later. But everything else lined up 70 years, and we're now at the year that he began to gather people to do a greater work through the college. 1953, the broadcast began to go to Europe. If the 70 years holds, 2023 will begin the year that the witnesses go to the world. First day of the tribulation after the abomination is set up. Another 70 years. If the end is in, if Christ returns in 26 and the millennium begins in 27, count back three and a half years, and 2023 is when the tribulation begins. And then is when the two go to the world. Just as Herbert Armstrong began to go, not just to Israel, I mean to the United States, but to the rest of the world in 1953. 70 years again. 1996, Worldwide Church of God, or 1986, Herbert Armstrong died. And in 1996, ten years later, Sardis died. Worldwide Church of God basically died in 1996. And it was in January of 96, he died January of 86. Ten years later, we can say Worldwide was basically dead. January of 96 began the information for a new work to be done. There's where the timelines merge and we're on real time from 1996 on. No more parallels from Herbert Armstrong because he's dead and gone. But a new work began at that time. Let's count back. If Atonement 27 is uh, the beginning of the millennium, then fall of 26 would be the first resurrection at Trumpets. Three and a half years of tribulation prior to that brings us to 2023 when it begins, probably at Passover time, when the temple is defiled and the tribulation begins. The flight to Zion occurs. Then prior to that, 2022 and 2021, you have nearly a year and a half of building the wall of Jerusalem, which is then defiled by the beast power. That leaves us with 2020, 2019, 2018, 
to gather and build the temple. That's all the time there is. Twenty-seven's done. We're in, at least in the Gregorian calendar, we're in 2018 now. The gathering has to occur soon in order for these things to happen. Pray. Have faith. Because all the things that Matthew 24 says are either happening and about to get worse, and I think that this summer may have begun the start of the race. Because Amos 8 tells us that there would be a time at noon when the sun would be darkened and trouble and floods and difficulties would start to occur the summer, time of the summer of the summer fruits. We had that eclipse all the way across this country at noon. The sky went dark, and almost immediately we started having severe hurricanes. Volcanoes, earthquakes have increased around the world. The tensions have gotten worse for a nuclear war. Our country is about to devolve into civil war. All these things that would happen are occurring. If that prophecy in Isaiah 7 is a sign, then it appears that this nation will have to be destroyed before 2018 is done. And we just read today that we're supposed to flee and the gathering occur just ahead of all that, just ahead of the financial collapse, which is probably going to start it all. This country can be taken over once this collapse happens, and we have no food, famine and pestilence have started, then they can invade us with the sword and take us captive, just as we are supposed to go captive 430 years after we got here, according to Ezekiel, which would be 2018. Now, am I nuts? Or do we need to pray and prepare ourselves and put on our white garments because the turnaround and the forgiveness of our sins appears to be very close and will be time to begin the big part of the work.